0: Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs.
0: And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast.
1: Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us.
0: On today's program, the Campus Ministry Christian Union is learning new ways to minister in the age of COVID-19.
1: Also, a new survey says that while many Christians want to return to church, they still have plenty of concerns about safety.
0: And we continue our series on generous living with a profile of Greg and Rhonda Brenneman, who have made philanthropy a family affair.
1: We begin today with accusations of sexual abuse and exploitation of teenagers by a popular Christian camp—
0: Yeah, it's a popular Christian camp, but some of the former students are now referring to it as a Christian concentration camp. They're talking about Youth America, a church-run camp and college that each summer attracts thousands of young people to its Oklahoma City campus. The highly touted non-denominational ministry has, over the years, featured a lot of big name Christian celebrities, including Hillsong's Peter and Laura Toggs, Carl Lentz, and singer Carrie Job But today, Youth America and the multi-site church that owns Youth America, a church called Church of the Harvest, stand accused by about 100 former interns and campers themselves of creating a pattern of sexual misconduct, mismanagement of funds, and the exploitation of minors.
1: So what are they alleging?
0: Well, the movement to expose and close Youth America and Church of the Harvest exploded from a single Facebook post uh, that was put up by Brandon Palisano, an intern at the Church of the Harvest, from 2013 to 2015. That post criticized church internships as being emotionally and mentally abusive and said that anyone who was thinking about doing an internship should not. Within hours, dozens of people had liked the post and now more than 5,000 comments have been added many recounting specific incidents of spiritual, emotional, and in some cases, sexual abuse. Now, there's also a petition that's been started. It has more than 3,000 signatures causing for the closure of Youth America and for the Church of the Harvest itself. The petition also demands that the founders, Kirk and Nancy Pancretz, along with their staff and board, be held accountable for their actions dating back more than 20 years. Well, I
1: see a lot of petitions online these days. Do you think that anything will actually come of this?
0: Well, it's a little too early to tell, but the public exposure does seem to have given some victims the courage to speak out. One person who posted about alleged abuses, Havila Capshaw-Bagnaro, who was a student uh, at a high school that the Church of the Harvest ran back in 2001. Now, Capshaw-Bagnaro told KFOR Television that her abuser was Grant Pankratz, who is the son of the founder, Kirk and Nancy Pankratz. Now, I won't share with you the sordid details that were in that KFOR news story, but I will say that Capshaw-Bagnaro was 15 when the alleged assault happened. And a spokesperson for the Edmond, Oklahoma, Police Department said that the police are, in fact, investigating the incident and that they planned to present charges to the district attorney.
1: Now, Warren, before we move on, this story raises some pretty important questions. How do you decide what to cover, and how to cover it when it comes to stories like this, which includes such very uncomfortable uh, issues of the sexual
0: abuse. Well, that's a really great question, and a comprehensive answer uh, to that question, Natasha, is probably too much for this podcast. But let me give you a few principles that we try to follow here at Ministry Watch. First, Ministry Watch is committed to transparency and accountability. So if there's a biblical process in place and it's being followed, we often will step back from a story and maybe not cover it um, exhaustively or in an investigative way until that process is uh, either played itself out Or maybe the leaders will release information to certain milestones. But I should also say that a growing number of large independent churches simply don't have a biblical process in place. Uh, That was and is, for example, the situation at Church of the Harvest. Now, secondly, we also follow long-established journalistic standards for attribution and corroboration that usually means that we need to see documents and have multiple witnesses. So for example, in the case of this story that we were just talking about, there were scores of people making accusations on Facebook about abusive behavior. Some of them may end up being true, but an accusation on Facebook does not rise to the level of our journalistic standard. However, One of those women did come forward and actually take her story to the police, take it to the media, was willing to have her name used, and the police say that the story is credible enough to warrant an investigation. So that's a story we can and obviously will write about.
1: Well, thank you for explaining that. It's very helpful. Now, I'd like to move the conversation along a little bit to um, a story about giving, specifically a story about how the COVID crisis has had a negative impact on giving.
0: Yeah, giving to charities dropped 6% in the first quarter of this year compared to the same quarter last year. Now, that included an 11% dive in just the month of March as we were sort of headed into the coronavirus pandemic lockdown.
1: So, last week we talked about the Giving USA data that showed 2.4% growth in 2019 to almost $450 billion. So, If a 6% decline were projected through the end of 2020, it would result in an estimated $25 billion drop in giving for the year.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that would have a huge impact on nonprofits and, more importantly, on the people that these nonprofits are serving. But I should add that there was some good news in this latest report. The first two months of the year started out actually really strong, and the stock market is back up to pre-COVID levels. Uh, The Dow Jones Industrial Average, most people don't know this, but it's in fact true, is a powerful indicator of charitable giving.
1: And there's another bright spot in the data, and that was the generosity of small givers.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners have probably been getting some of these online solicitations. Organizations that can't hold events have been turning to online benefits, including concerts and other kinds of uh, events where we're asking people to give online and they're having an impact. Smaller dollar donors have in fact sort of come to the rescue so far this year. Certainly that was true in the first quarter. Uh, The survey noted in fact, that there was a 6% increase in donations of less than $250. Now, of course that wasn't enough to make up for the drop in larger donors. And that's why the overall number was still down. But those small donors definitely kept things from being much worse than they otherwise might have been.
1: Now, one more money story before we go to break. The Internal Revenue Service and Department of Treasury issued a notice of proposed rulemaking regarding an additional tax on nonprofit salaries of more than one million dollars. Is that a big deal?
0: Well, that depends on how you look at it. It's not a big deal if you look at it in terms of immediate impact on Christian ministries. Ministry Watch did a survey of the highest paid Christian ministry executives, and less than a dozen make more than a million dollars a year. But what is a big deal is the fact that they are proposing— these kinds of regulations at all. Some will say that this is the camel's nose under the tent, and that once the federal government establishes that it can and should regulate nonprofit salaries, there'll be no turning back. Is that the
1: ministry watch position?
0: Well, for the most part, I would say yes, but I would also add that these regulations wouldn't be talked about if the government and the public uh, didn't have a sense that they were needed. I think they make a strong case for increased transparency, accountability, and that would restore credibility to the Christian ministry marketplace. In other words, if we don't do a better job policing ourselves, we can be sure that this sort of policing will be more and more common in the future. And of course, at the risk of shameless self-promotion, that kind of transparency and accountability is what Ministry Watch is all about. So
1: what's next for these regulations?
0: Well, the IRS issued a 177-page proposal this week in the Federal Register. Written or electronic comments and requests for a public hearing must be received within the next 60 days.
1: Well, Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, returning to church has been a political issue. And for a lot of churchgoers, it's still a safety issue as well.
0: I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: And I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And we'll be back after this short break.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to SaveTheStorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com.
1: Welcome back, I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch weekly podcast. Up next, most Americans aren't comfortable Going back to church. And most of us also say that we won't be back to normal until 2021.
0: Uh, Those are the conclusions of a new survey done by the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank. With the exception of white evangelicals, a majority of Americans are just not comfortable returning to in person religious services yet. The survey showed, in fact, that 64% of Americans were either somewhat uncomfortable or very uncomfortable attending in-person worship. Even among those who reported that their congregations offered in-person worship in the past week, 56% of those respondents said that they chose not to go.
1: The study was conducted in late May and early June. So do you think that it's possible that these results may have changed?
0: Well, I'm guessing that they probably have changed, but it's kind of hard to say in what direction they've changed. Last month, for example, the president demanded that states allow places of worship to reopen right away and said that he would override state governors who refused. But at the same time, stories of church outbreaks were growing as well. Uh, Last week, for example, a Pentecostal church in Oregon was linked to the state's largest coronavirus outbreak to date, some 230 cases from a single church. The church had held services in defiance of Oregon's stay-at-home order.
1: So can you break down this survey a little bit for us?
0: Yeah, I will, because in part, that's the interesting part of this survey, Um, just how we broke down based on kind of where we fall on the religious continuum. The only religious group that was comfortable with church reopenings, in fact, was white evangelicals. About 61% of white evangelicals responded uh, that they were somewhat comfortable or very comfortable uh, with in-person worship. Now, another thing that's interesting is that women were um, not nearly as comfortable as men. 71% of white evangelical men uh, said that they would be at least somewhat comfortable attending in-person services. Only 51% of white evangelical women said that. And by comparison, on the other end of the spectrum, about 32% of black Protestants and 39% of white Catholics said that they were comfortable returning to church.
1: Another story I noticed on the Ministry Watch website this week was a remembrance of National Widows' Day, which was June 23rd.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I should say that caring for widows should be at the center of church and Christian ministry activities. The Bible in the book of James describes the care of widows and orphans as the very definition of what James calls true religion. Uh, The story that our writer, Ann Stike, did for us— began with an epigram, Psalm 68.5, which reads, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. So that's the biblical basis for observing June 23rd as International Widows Day. It's a day designated to draw attention to the experience of and garner support for widows all around the world. Reggie Littlejohn is the founder of an organization called Women's Rights Without Frontiers. That's an organization that uh, does a lot of work in China, and she said that Christian widows in China are in some cases being forced to renounce their faith in order to get government aid. Uh, It's a heartbreak and an outrage that widows and other elderly are forced to renounce their faith in order to receive stipends, Reggie Littlejohn said. For many, they need these funds to survive. She also said that one of the problems in China is the one-child policy. It's destroyed family structure in China. Uh, In the past, the Chinese uh, enjoyed large families, and it was not a burden for children and grandchildren to support the elderly. But now many elderly people feel completely abandoned and destitute. The suicide rate among seniors is growing in China, and this is a special problem for widows, for older women. Uh, The sad solution for many is simply to take their own lives. Her ministry has a widow's fund to care for Christian and other widows who are in that very difficult situation.
1: Now, Warren, our next story is kind of that we don't really do that much here at Ministry Watch, and that is a movie review.
0: That's right. In fact, I don't recall that we have ever done a movie review before now.
1: So, why are you reviewing this movie, a documentary called American Gospel?
0: Well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, the movie is an expose of prosperity gospel preachers, including Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, and Benny Hinn. And we've covered all of those folks here at Ministry Watch in the past. Secondly, though the movie came out originally in 2018, it's been newly released on Netflix, which means that it's now available to millions of households all across the country and around the world. And for that reason, I thought it would be newsworthy.
1: Okay, fair enough. Do you think the movie's any good?
0: Well, it is. I it's not perfect. A, a lot of talking heads, uh but some of those talking heads are very smart and have a lot to talk about. Uh they include author and spoken word artist Jackie Hill Perry, theologian Michael Horton, and many others. Another thing I like about the movie is that it takes theological issues seriously and you don't often see that on your Netflix menu. One of the other aspects of this movie that I find particularly interesting is that it features Costi Hen, who is the nephew of Benny Hinn. Uh, growing up in an environment saturated with the prosperity gospel and heavily involved in his uncle Benny Hen's ministry, Costigan, who by the way is now a pastor himself, provides a key perspective that is both brutally honest but also shows a great deal of compassion as well.
1: Now, Warren, we have to take another break, but when we return, the next installment in the Generous Living series we began last week. Today, we talk about a family who has made giving a family affair. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a Stork Bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork Buses partner college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savedthestorks.com. That's savedthestorks.com.
1: Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Orn, we often try to close the show with a good news story, and today we have two of them.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the first one comes from a Christian ministry called Christian Union, which is a campus ministry that has sort of a unique niche. And what do you mean by that? Well, Christian Union focuses on the elite colleges in this country. It got its start on the campus of Princeton University, one of the oldest colleges in the nation, and a member of the prestigious Ivy League. Now Christian Union is on every Ivy League campus, plus Stanford University, another elite school on the West Coast.
1: Warren, we've, we've done some stories about campus ministries uh, and how they've had to make some serious pivots to continue their work during the COVID crisis, often going online, as many of us have had to do.
0: Yeah, that's right. Though Christian Union, I think, has taken that a step farther than than most. They've been hosting, for example, 24-hour prayer sessions that students can log into and off of as their schedule allows, even in the middle of the night if they happen to be up uh, studying late. Um, Also, one thing that's a bit unusual about Christian Union is that it has a significant number of international students in its programs, especially at Stanford, which of course is in California and has a lot of Asian students as a normal part of the student body there. Some of the students that are Americans that are involved in the ministry have opened up their homes to the international students who have had to shelter in place here in the U.S., haven't been able to go home. Wow, that's a
1: great story. You've also got another one uh, to close the day with. And it's the second in our generous giving series stories of individuals, couples, and in today's case, families who are committed to radical generosity.
0: Yeah, today's story comes from Christina Darnell, who writes about Greg and Rhonda Brenneman. Now, uh, some of our listeners may actually have heard of Greg Brenneman because he's a pretty well-known business guy. He has written a couple of books about leadership and management. He's been the president of um, uh, PWC, that's PricewaterhouseCoopers Consulting. He was the president at Burger King and also at Quiznos. In fact, in his early 30s, he's kind of... When he developed his reputation uh, as a businessman, whenever he turned around Continental Airlines and brought it back from near bankruptcy, Uh, he's now the executive chairman of CCMP Capital, which is a private equity firm.
1: So he's had quite a lot of success in his professional career.
0: Yeah, he really has. And he and Rhonda, his wife, have made philanthropy a priority as well. But as their kids came along, and especially as they got older, they wanted to make sure that more than just their work ethic got passed along, they wanted to make sure that their Christian values, especially as it relates to money and generosity, got passed along as well. Uh, The details are probably more than you or our listeners want, especially since Greg as I said, has written books on this topic. But here are a couple of key ideas. Greg tells people to develop a one-page plan for their lives. I suggest that people use the five Fs, faith, family, friends, fitness, and finance, he said. He also recommended that you get all of that, as I said, onto a single piece of paper and really order your life around them. He said that it has a dramatic impact. It
1: also makes it easier to clarify and succinctly share your life priorities with your family.
0: Well, that's exactly right. And that, again, is another key. Uh, They both believe that generosity and other Christian values are, as the old saying goes, more caught and taught. So if your kids know what your values are because you've been very clear about uh, writing them down and being focused on them, and if you make decisions in your life based on those values, your kids are going to see that and it's going to have a powerful impact on them.
1: But I take it that they don't really ignore teaching either.
0: No, they don't, and uh, a key way that Rhonda uh, says that she taught kids about money and generosity was simply to make them keep an old-fashioned ledger book when it came to money. On the one side of the ledger, the kids would write down the money that comes in. It might be work that they've done or maybe a gift from grandma at birthday, and on the other side, they would keep track of where the money went. Just being intentional about writing it down and being able to see it visibly made a huge difference.
1: I can certainly see how it would.
0: Yeah, and not only that, when the kids wanted something, and they have three kids, by the way, all grown now, Rhonda would say, as a parent, I will provide you with all of your needs, but not all of your wants. If you want something that you don't really need, you're going to have to pay for that yourself. And she said that it helped them to realize that spending really is a choice. So how does this all
1: relate to generosity and philanthropy?
0: Well, for one thing, wasn't a choice. The first 10% went to church. They paid the church first, and that, too, helped them to keep their priorities straight. Also, now that the kids are grown, they take an active part in their parents' philanthropy decisions.
1: Wow, that is a really great story.
0: Uh, Yeah, and you know, honestly, Natasha, there's a whole lot more to this story than I'm able to get into today, which is why I really love this new Generous Living feature that we have on the website. Uh, You can read Christina Darnell's story by, of course, going to the Ministry Watch website.
1: Yeah, and in fact, if you would like to read more about any of the stories that we discussed on today's program, just go to ministrywatch.com and you'll find them right on the front page. With that, Warren, we need to bring our time together to a close. Do you have any final words?
0: Well, I'd just like to remind everyone of Bobby Ross's Weekend Plug-In column on our website every Saturday. It's a digest of news, and it has a lot of links to stories um, related to what he calls the God Beat, religion and ethics. So if you're a news junkie, especially, or if you just want to get caught up for the week, you definitely want to check out Bobby's column. Uh, Also, I want to mention that we're approaching our June 30 year end, and I'd like to thank the more than five hundred of you who have made a gift to ministry watch during the past year if that was you please know that your gift was an encouragement to us personally and it allows us to continue our vital work to bring transparency accountability and renewed credibility to the christian ministry marketplace if you'd like to support our work just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page and finally I want to say a quick word to our new listeners, and that word is welcome. I hope you'll be with us each and every week, and I hope you'll tell a friend. And don't forget to rate us on your podcast app. It's absolutely free, doesn't take but a few seconds to rate us, and it really helps us out a lot.
1: The producers for today's program are Rich Rosl and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DuBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Lisa Vanderboon, Tom Campisi, Christina Darnell, Ann Stike, Julie Royce, and Warren Smith. Thanks to our friends at the Nonprofit Times, Religion Unplugged, and Religion News Service for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs.
0: And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. May God bless you.